Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we might see and believe. Mark 15, verse 32. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. With that verse that I just read, the chief priests and the scribes mocked Jesus from the foot of the cross, which was, as we just heard, the last of a long line of mockeries that Jesus encountered, right? The mockery of these kangaroo courts through the night, the gross mockery of the, uh, of the soldiers you know, putting on the sort of fake resemblances of imperial garments and fake honoring him, and then this... Um, mocking challenge from the chief priests and the scribes. It's worth remembering that as well as the uh, physical agony of the beating, beatings and the crucifixion and the spiritual agony of the desolation of from the, uh, being forsaken by the Father, um, Jesus also endured the social agony of just constant mockery throughout his passion. Now, I'm grateful that none of us, by God's grace, would uh, join in the blasphemous contempt of the soldiers, right, fake honor in Christ. But I fear, at least as I know in my own heart, I fear that in the, a dark hour of trial, it's tempting to join with the chief priests and the scribes in their specific mockery. So I wanna, that's what I want to unpack this morning. But first, I need to point out that of two people groups who should have known better at the cross, the chief priests and the scribes should have known better. The chief priests, right, the priests, their vocation was sacrificing living things to atone for the sins of Israel. As prescribed in the Torah, shedding blood was part of their everyday vocabulary. And even more specifically, if you look at Leviticus, when a, a priest had to offer a sin offering for himself, because it says, as we just heard in Hebrews last week, under the Old Covenant, where we have just mortal priests and now we have the great high priest, but in the old covenant, the priests had to offer offerings for the people and for themselves. And the sin offering that the priest offered for himself, um, if anyone, I, I would not have known this as a piece of sort of Bible trivia, but where did they take the flesh of that animal when they offered a sin offering for themselves, but outside the temple walls? So it's likely because the Golgotha stood just outside the city wall, just outside the temple wall, the, the priests might, would not have been far, standing far from where they were used to bringing sacrificed offerings for their own sins. And yet they fail to make the connection that this is the Lamb of God. And the scribes whom Mark tells us joined in the mockery, meaning scribes of the scriptures, right? Writers and expounders of the scriptures. They would have been very familiar with Isaiah 53, the Old Testament reading we just heard read. The Messiah will be lifted up stricken, pierced for our transgressions, crushed and wounded for the healing of the nations. And here was Jesus right in front of them. By the way, a passage so clearly prophetic of Christ that since the rise of Christianity in the first century, the Jews actually stopped reading Isaiah 53 in their synagogue lectionaries. They actually just skipped the chapter. They go from 52 to 54 because it's such a clear prophecy of Jesus. Many Jews today may have never heard Isaiah 53. I have a friend who is a missionary in the Holy Land, and he opens, Torah, he opens the Hebrew Scriptures with them. He's like, look, have you ever read this passage in Isaiah? And many of the Jewish people he encounters are like, I've never heard that passage, because it so clearly points to Jesus. But here it was, the scribes, they knew this passage. 
they're beholding Jesus on the cross and they're completely missing that this is the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. They didn't have scare quotes. You know, people go like this um, in the first century because I don't think they didn't have quotation marks in the same way. Um, but that verse I read, they are certainly using the tone of scare quotes, right? Those chief priests, chief priests and the scribes. Let the Christ, which they don't believe that he is, the king of Israel, which they don't believe that he is, it's written above his head, right, on the wooden plaque above his head. Let him come down now from the cross, a mocking challenge. What they're saying is, if you're really the Messiah, like you say you're, you're being, you are, which we don't believe, if you're really the Messiah, you'd have the power to not get killed like this. So prove it, and then we'll believe you. That's what it goes on to say in the verse, that we may see and believe. And this is where we come to the, the essence of the evil thought that I think we are sometimes tempted with in our dark hours. Prove it, God, and then I'll believe you. Right? That's, the, well, the, that's what the chief priests and the scribes are saying. Prove it, God, and then I'll believe you. Do something impressive before my eyes, and then I'll be yours. When the going gets rough, and I mean not just like the daily difficulties, but I mean really rough with chronic sickness and death, betrayal, the enemy will often suggest that we join in that mocking challenge to the Lord, challenging God to do something big and impressive to prove himself to us. In real time, in the fog of difficulty, it can be hard to smell the evil odor of that challenge, but on the pages of the Gospels, I hope it... Um, we can sniff it out for what it is. So let me just unpack what's wrong with the challenge. In the first case, it's asking for an outward showing, something supernaturally that's visible, right? Come off from the cross, because only a miracle could unnail a hand, right, from a, from a cross, which totally fails to recognize that perhaps God is moving in the unseen realm, as of course he was, right? That as Paul calls the blood of Christ the blood of God, that as Christ's blood is dripping down the wood of the cross, it is beginning the, the cleansing of the world. The forgiveness of sins is made available for the first time. But this was happening not visible to the eyes. It was happening in the unseen realm. And I fully believe that the angels could see what was happening. And that's how we can understand why it seems like nature itself is unraveling in this moment, right? Darkness and earthquaking. The angels who ordinarily keep these things going in regular round were beholding the God-man dying, and the world was undone. The challenge is also wrong because it's asking for a show of strength when in his mysterious wisdom, God chose to, to begin the redemption of mankind with weakness. That's what we heard from Philippians, that Jesus, the Son of God, in his humility took on this humble form and then suffered this exceedingly humiliating death. He led with weakness and not the strength that we would like to see a conquering king have, right? And this is what Paul says elsewhere, that you know, we used to behold the cross for merely sort of outward things. It looks like failure, but it was, in, in fact, the greatest victory because it was the victory over death. But the ultimate um, error of the mockery is the way in which it centers oneself as at the center as the Lord of the universe. God, you need to prove yourself to me if I'm going to believe in you. Right? It's got it exactly backwards as if he was a subject and we were the emperor. No, no, he's the emperor. 
and we are the subject. He doesn't have to prove to us anything. And there's, of course, the great irony that even if Jesus did what they challenged him to do, because of course he had the power, right? Could I not send 12 legions? Could the, would the Father not send 12 legions of angels upon the Lord's request? He had the power to do it. If he'd have answered their challenge and came down from the cross, would the chief priests and the scribes actually have believed? I don't think they would. Right? Jesus says in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, even if someone rose from the dead, to someone who has willfully rejected God's ways, it will be unconvincing. Moreover, Jesus has for three years prior done countless healings and miracles and exorcisms and feedings of people in a desert hillside. Right? The Gospel of John says there's not enough books in the world to recount all of the things that Jesus did. Just about a week, just over a week prior to Palms, just a week or two prior to his own death, Jesus had raised Lazarus just five miles away from Jerusalem. Lazarus, right now, while Jesus is on the cross, Lazarus is walking around somewhere. He's probably hiding, maybe near the upper room, we don't know, but he's a living example of Jesus' power, is walking around near or around Jerusalem. Jesus had already done signs greater than the very thing they're asking for, but the chief priests and the scribes, they didn't believe the eyewitness accounts. They didn't see it with their own eyes. Someone came to them and said, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and they were incredulous. It's very interesting, the parallel to our own situation today, right? We only have a second-hand account of the miracles of Jesus, the scriptures, right? The, the record of the eyewitnesses. But the question is, do we trust them or not? The chief priests and the scribes wouldn't believe it, as many people today don't believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But it's there on the page to be believed. Even if Jesus did the miracle in front of their own eyes, it wouldn't convince them because fundamentally they had seated their own self at the center of their universe rather than recognizing that the Lord is the center of the universe. So I just encourage you that um, in a dark hour, if the thought crosses your mind in the future, as it, as it does, right, the enemy, I love, it was Martin Luther who framed it like this, that we can't control um, what thoughts come into our mind, like birds that fly across the sky, you can't control it. You can only control if you allow them to nest. It's a great piece of pastoral advice from Martin Luther. The, the thought may come across your mind. There's no fault in the thought. It's what you do with the thought. But when the thought comes across your mind, God, you need to show me a sign if I'm going to believe you. Just remember who said that first, right? The mockers at the cross. And let Jesus be the Lord and not you. Lastly, um, the inversion of the gospel is that whereas the mockers were saying, come on, Lord, come off the cross, to Christians, Jesus is actually inviting us onto the cross. Right? That's why all of the, there's this wonderful sort of double meaning in all these prayers we've begun praying on that I just read at the beginning of the service and all through Holy Week when we talk about walking the way of the cross. We mean it at both levels, both in the remembrance of the historical events, right? We're walking the way, we're retracing the historical steps of Christ's passion and death, but not just as some sort of reenactment, but with the hopes that it might actually impress upon our own souls that we might walk in the pattern of the cross. Jesus is inviting us onto the cross. Like him to accept misery with patience. 
like, in, like he exemplified so clearly in Gethsemane, to pray for our enemies and to forsake even what is good and what we hold dear, just as Jesus did. He's inviting us onto the cross. Actually, there's a verse in um, Philippians, just a few verses beyond our reading, that Paul just captures this sentiment, you know, inspired by the Holy Spirit in perfect synthesis. Paul prays that he may know God, so I may know Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, and come up with him on the cross, share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Becoming like him in his death. I think both participating literally in the death of Christ, but also in an imitative way, in the manner of his patient resignation to the Father's will in the face of great trial. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the reason and the hope of the gospel, why we walk through Palm Sunday in this remembrance of the great agony of the cross and are constantly holding forth the life of self-denial and willingly taking on difficulty for God's sake as Christians isn't just because we're gloomy or masochists, it's because it's the means to the end, the only means to the end of the eternal life, the resurrection that we hope for. May we share with him in his sufferings, I mean that in every sense, becoming like him in his death. Amen.